0: Good morning, Saints. We're going to be uh, looking at a lot of scripture today, so there wasn't one particular one that I wanted to single out, and I apologize, there are no notes. So there are, you can write, if you want, down the references as we speed through these. Maybe later I could get something to Josh. If, if you want to get something in writing, I can uh, get this for you. But uh, thank you for the privilege of uh, being able to minister the Word. Thank you to the leadership here. And uh, I guess it's kind of interesting, we're in the end of January, and we're still talking about Advent. And so this is going to be the last Message on the Advent series, and Pastor Matt asked me if I would bring a message on that. And so today we are going to consider Advent from maybe a little different perspective, but I want us to uh, be thinking about the relationship of the coming of Christ and its incredible link to what God has done in and through King David. And we've been looking at at that, haven't we? We've been looking back at the Old Testament. We've been looking at at Saul. We've been looking at David. And I'm just going to kind of bring us, kind of put a bow on this, I hope, for the Advent series by wrapping it up at looking at David's greater son. So King David, let's review a little bit of his life. It's fascinating, isn't it? It's uh, a roller coaster, actually, when you think about redemptive history and what happened there. David's life is filled with some incredible epic triumphs. But is stained with some devastating failures, intrigues, betrayals, the like. David is a very unlikely person to have risen to be the king of Israel. He was born the youngest son of Jesse. Maybe we'd consider him kind of the runt of the litter, right? And yet that's who God chose. But David, being the youngest, uh, did not lack courage. In fact, he singled out for his courage in Scripture as the great protector of the flock. Remember in the stories of David's youth, he, uh, at one point he killed a bear, at one point he killed a lion, and eventually protected the whole nation by a single, mighty, fatal shot to the blasphemous forehead of a Philistine giant. And the church said, amen. Good. Good. And so we see David grew. He became a man's man. He's a soldier's soldier. He was a leader of men. He had a kind of a ragtag group of people called David's mighty men, and yet they esteemed him as the mighty branch of Jesse. We know the story. He was hated and hunted by God-forsaken Saul. King Saul was jealous and And David and his mighty men were able to evade Saul. And even while they're evading Saul, they were able to destroy the Philistines. So David had an epic time there. And and he was truly a a battle-hardened man. And yet, he had a remarkably golden soul. The Bible describes David two ways. He was a bloody man after God's own heart. A lot of times we can't see those together, but that's how the Scripture defines him. In fact, I love the Psalms, most of us do, and the Psalms, if you will, are a window into that poetic, psychic soul of of David. He just had incredible spiritual insights into our human condition, and they they overflow, don't they? He earnestly uh, articulates our deepest longings. And you read the Psalms and and mournfully, they they lament our griefs and our sorrows, and yet insightfully pulls us to our greatest aspirations. There's no other book anywhere in human literature that can compare to the Psalms. In fact, I think it's God's mental health book for, for his people, so read it regularly. So David's Psalms are wonderful, they're glorious. But we know the story about David, don't we? He is tragically flawed. He is a king. He ostensibly has the ability and the calling to rule, but guess what? He can't even rule his own lust, can he? So he gets pulled into an adulterous relationship with Bathsheba and then conspires to kill her innocent, if you will, more godly Hittite husband, Uriah. David is a king, but he can't even rule over his own home. What happens? You know the story. It's tragic. Amnon rapes his half-sister Tamar. What does David do? He does nothing. That sets into motion things that will, will haunt David's family for the rest of their life. So what happens? Absalom, Tamar's uh, brother, lies in wait until just the right time, and then takes justice into his own hand, and Ammon is murdered by Absalom. David is a king, but can't even rule his own nation. We read later in David's story, for four years, the Bible says, Absalom would diligently rise up early and sit in the gates and render justice. Wait a minute. That's the king's job. David has the title to rule, but not the willingness to rule. And what happens? So after four years of Absalom essentially doing the king's job, what happens? The heart of Israel is drawn to Absalom, and that sets the stage. Absalom uh, has a coup, and the next thing we, we read is David is fleeing for his life in the wilderness from his own son. Then David's mighty men come back together, they put the band back together, (laughs) they go to war, right? And they go out to war, and uh, through all of God's good providence, they are successful. And even though David said, go gently on Absalom, uh, they knew better, and Absalom was killed in battle. And we read some of the most mournful words in Scripture when David hears of his son's death, Absalom, Absalom, he cries, dishonoring the bravery, and the loyalty of all those men who had gone out and risked their life for David. It's an epic story. You can't make this stuff up. You, if you tried to write this as fiction, it would be absolutely unbelievable. But it is what is revealed in Scripture, and it, it's epic, it's triumphant, it's heartbreaking, and there's failure in it. And isn't that what we like about the Bible? That's one of the reasons I enjoy the scriptures. It doesn't candy coat life. It's not what we call hagiography, holy history, or fake history. You've heard of fake news? There's a lot of fake history out there where they try to candy coat reality. The Bible exposes the flaws of even its most lauded heroes, like David. So what does that mean for us? Why are we looking at David in a series on Advent? Isn't David just one Flawed man among literally billions of flawed men? No, he's not. He's very essential to what God is doing in the bringing forth of Christ. And so today I want us to consider David's greater son, and we're going to consider him in two heads. And the first one is we will consider him as the greater son of David according to the flesh. So, Write these references down. I'm going to speed preach through these, and you can go back and check me out later. But uh, uh, for purposes of time, I'm just going to uh, blow through this, and the Scriptures will be back uh, on the uh, screen behind me. What's fascinating is the New Testament is literally bookend with David. The very first Bible verse, Matthew 1, 1, says what? the book of the genealogy, remember that, genealogy of Jesus Christ, who is he? The son of David. It's very critical at the outset of the New Testament that this is established for the the legitimacy of Christ's reign. The only way he could really be the Messiah is if he is indeed the son of David. And again, we see this Appealed to in one of the very last verses of the New Testament in Revelation chapter twenty-two, verse sixteen, where Jesus Himself is declaring His title to rule, His 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 legitimacy as the King of Kings, and He says, "I am the root," probably referring to the root of Jesse, and the descendant of who? Of David. So this is critical. The Bible, the New Testament begins with it and it ends with it. This is one of the last titles ascribed to Jesus. So what is, what's at stake here? One of the most staggering promises that are, is given in the Scriptures is given to David. And we see that in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. David is promised, When your days are fulfilled and when you lie down with your fathers, I will rise Raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom, how long? Forever. Wow. A forever kingdom. That's pretty awesome. Now, of course, this was partially fulfilled, wasn't it, by Solomon David's son. He was able to build the temple of the Lord after David was uh, denied that. And yes, there was a Davidic heir on the throne all the way from Solomon. And if you follow all the history of Judah, all the way down to the Babylonian exile to Jehoiachin. But the promise of a forever kingdom seemed unfulfilled. And exactly when would it come? And and that's what was... uh, animating the Jews of Jesus' day. They were expecting a Messiah to come who would fulfill this staggering promise of an eternal kingdom that would come in, this messianic king, and he would come in and, and establish this awesome geopolitical uh, base where God would rule in those rascally Italians, you know, you know, those Gentiles. Get those guys out and let God be God, and uh, the Davidic kingdom would be established forever. Sorry to all you Italians. But what has happened? Well, let's look around. Where is that eternal kingdom? Where is the biological heir of David and Solomon? There is no kingdom. In fact, I would argue you couldn't even trace the Davidic line today. I don't know how you would. There is no Israeli, if you will, theocratic kingdom. There is no king in Israel. So, did God's promise fail? Everyone say no, okay? I want you to be sure of that. Absolutely not, because someone greater than David and someone greater even than Solomon did appear, and God fulfilled this promise in an astonishing way that utterly transcended the understanding of what the people of that day thought, the promise of an eternal Davidic dynasty was far greater than anything they could have ever expected. I love what David said in the Psalm in Psalm 24, verse 8. He asks this question: Who is this King of glory? Remember, he's, he's praying. Lift up your gates, lift up your heads. Who is this king of glory? And aren't you glad by God's grace we know who he is? What's his name? His name is Jesus. And let me tell you, he has come, and he has fulfilled to the uttermost the promises made to David. Now, how do we know that? In his first advent, in his first coming, Jesus inaugurated the kingdom. and It's an unshakable, indestructible kingdom. Well, how how do we know that? Because the signs of the kingdom were present. The prophesied signs were there. Isaiah, in the spirit, looking forward to the reign of Messiah, said, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. And then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. After healing Peter's mother-in-law, you remember that story, it says the multitudes heard about it, they all flocked to Peter's mother-in-law's house, and Jesus was there, and he cast out demons and healed the sick, and by the Spirit, we read this commentary in Matthew 8, verse 17. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our sorrows. In Luke eleven twenty, we read, but if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, this is Jesus speaking, then the kingdom of God has come among you. So our conquering Christ did come, has come, and he has come to do what? To destroy all the works of the devil. And we see this born witness throughout his ministry. The seas and the storms are even subject to our Lord. He multiplies wine and fish and loaves. He Uh, confronts the arrogant and the proud but then brings comfort to the lowly and the humble and the gospel is preached to the poor. The kingdom of God is here and it has come. But there's a huge twist though, isn't it? It's not the way we expected it to come. In his first advent, King Jesus is born in a barn In some obscure backwater town. He's heralded by angels, but who shows up for the worship service? Shepherds. And if you don't know, shepherds, they were despised in that culture. They were were like rednecks, okay? (laughs) Being a redneck, I can say that. (laughs) And who else shows up? Gentiles. Can you believe it? Jewish leaders didn't show up, Jewish elite. He's raised not in royalty. He's raised as a commoner, son of a carpenter. Even his triumphal entry into Jerusalem is on a donkey. Yeah, on a lowly donkey. And that same fickle crowd, the one that lauded him as he comes into Jerusalem as son of David. So they they knew something was connected to David, In a few short days, that same crowd's crying what? Crucify him. They didn't get it. They didn't understand. Jesus is coronated with a crown of thorns. He's anointed with the spittle of his executioners. He's proclaimed king of the Jews, but it's only a taunt. It's only a mockery. And yet, all of this... All of this was by the predestined, predetermined plan of God. Not what we expected. And on a cruel Roman cross, Israel's true shepherd would lay down his life for the flock. See love's atoning blood pour from his brow, from his side, from his back. See those iron spikes engrave God's people on Christ's holy hands. Israel's true shepherd is protecting God's flock, protecting us from the wrath of Almighty God that we all deserved. And at the same time, he is protecting us from God's wrath. He is preserving God's justice by absorbing the wrath that we deserved. Our suffering shepherd protects us from the all-consuming fire of our holy, righteous God. And in doing so, what has he done? He silenced, he silenced forever the accuser of the brethren. And with his holy heel, he crushed the insolent skull of Satan. That is the son of David. According to the flesh, the perfect sacrifice, the one who offered perfect obedience as God's shepherd boy. And how do we know that God accepted this act? Well, we see in Romans chapter one, verses three through five. Paul speaking of the gospel, it says the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Concerning his son, who is the descendant from David, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So God the Father attests his divine approval by the irrefutable proof of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. God the Father would not allow His Holy One to see corruption, but would bring Him out of that grave. And Jesus, yes, He was descended from David according to the flesh, but He was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. And now all who are in Christ, all who are in Him, possess with Him eternal life. And the promise of God today is that we get to live eternally in an eternal kingdom with our eternal king. That's good news. Even a Presbyterian could say amen to that. So what is the application, preacher? That's, that's all great. That's wonderful. So what? Well, What strikes me about this story is how thoroughly earthy it is. Remember the first verse? It's all about genealogy, It's all about babies. Is there anything more earthy, more worldly, in some ways mundane and routine and yet more glorious than just God working through genealogy, working in what we would consider pretty mundane means, but yet this is the way that God advances his purposes in the earth. And brings glory to himself and salvation to his people. And he works with people and and because he works with people, he has to draw a straight line with crooked sticks. You've all heard that before, right? God had a straight line. He had a purpose in bringing glory to himself and salvation to his people by bringing forth the Messiah. But he had to work with people like David. An adulterer, a murderer, incompetent at home, can't even control his own passions. And yet, what happens? God works in and through all of David's DNA, all the way down to Jehoiakin, and eventually down to Mary and Joseph, who were both from the line of David, who went to the city of David in order to bring forth the Messiah, in order to bring to pass the promise that God had made to David, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That's the God we worship. We're not Gnostics, We don't live in the ethereal, in the spiritual, in the otherworldly. Yes, thank God for heaven. Thank God for our hope in heaven. But God works in this very real world in very practical ways. And we affirm that this is our Father's world, it is intrinsically good. Yes, there is sin, it has fallen, but it is God's good creation, and God works through history, and even though it's complicated, you got people like David who compromise and backslide, and you have all the highs and lows of family life and the economy and work and politics and even war, and yet God works in this world to His glory. Even with all of David's failures, as a father and as a king, God accomplished his goal and his will. And before you get smug and self-righteous, well, I never committed adultery, you know, I've I've never conspired to murder anybody, (laughs) and you start looking down on David, David shows up in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 11. (laughs) What is that? The hall of faith. He's an example of people, which Hebrews says, of whom this world was not worthy. David. And you know what else? When I read chapter 11 of Hebrews, my name is conspicuously absent. <laughs> and you know what? So is yours. God works through people like David in order to accomplish his will. I hope that encourages you. He is at work. He's at work in history. He's he's involved in all the messiness and all the complexities and the the heartaches and the failures and the triumphs and the ups and the downs, your struggles, and yes, they're real and and painful and sometimes fierce, but God is working out all things for your good. Isn't, Isn't that what Paul tells us? And we know. Say that with me. And we know. Say it one more time. And we know, I have to say that because sometimes I don't know this. I know this verse, but I don't know if I know it. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And, these, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the work of God. It's God works in the mess that is your life, and it is a glorious work, according to this scripture. And in spite of all our failures and disappointments, it remains a glorious work. And as we sing, no power of hell, no scheme of man can thwart God's eternal purpose, even the redemption of your immortal soul. He will finish the work of grace that he began in you. He will bring you all the way home to his eternal home and your eternal destiny. And you will fall on your face and say, righteous and true are your ways, O Lord. Rejoice in God's sovereign grace this morning, church, and in his good providence through which he works his grace in you. And he does all of that through David. The son or, and David's greater son, according to the flesh. But that's not all we need to know about Jesus, and I want us to consider one more point. Not as long. But it's that Jesus is the greater son of David according to his godhood. And this is critical for understanding the true nature of our Christ. While, yes, he is simultaneously human, he is also divine. And it's essential to understand this, or you don't have the real gospel. And in fact, David helps us in the Psalms to understand this in a way that no other author of Scripture does. And by the way, uh, how many of you want to know God's favorite Bible verse? You want to know that? We're about to read it. This is the verse that shows up more times in the Bible than any other verse. I think you should probably understand it then, right? Twenty-one times, or twenty-three times in the New Testament, this verse shows up, quoted more often in the New Testament than any other verse. So it's probably important that we understand it. So let's look at it. Psalm 110, verse 1. This is kind of a, a literal rendering of it. Yahweh, that is, the, you understand the covenant name of God, says to Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. As I said, God's favorite Bible verse. So what do we see Here. Jehovah, Yahweh, God, Almighty God, in all of His self-existent glory, the great I Am, He speaks. But who, to whom does He speak? He speaks, La Adonai, or La Adonai, to my Lord. Who's He talking to? Oh, that's a good question. In fact, Jesus asks the same question. When Jesus was going around ministering, everyone was getting a little frisky with Him. Why? Boy, he sure seems to be making some audacious claims, almost like he's God. And they're getting offended. And so, hey, by the way, just a little side, never get in an argument with Jesus, okay? I don't recommend that. So let's read about an argument with Jesus. So while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. Uh Uh-oh. Pop quiz. Jesus is asking a question. What do you think about Christ... Whose son is he? And they said to him, rightly, the son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David, in the Spirit, that is inspired by the Spirit in Scripture, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how then is he his son? No one was able to answer him a word. And I love this. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. So what is at stake here? Yahweh speaks. So David is writing and he sees Yahweh speaks to his Lord, to David's Lord. And what is it that Almighty God is saying to David's Lord? He's saying, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Now, so, this, you can see, David is ascribing to his Lord divinity. That's offensive. That's why Christmas is such a, an offense. That's why Muslims, they're not going to say Merry Christmas to you. They, they're offended by it because they understand what we mean by that. Uh, Jewish people have a, a Unitarian view of God, and we have the temerity to say, no, God became a man. What? That is utter blasphemy. And it would be if it weren't true, but it is true. And David saw the truthfulness of it even in Psalm 110, verse 1. And so this is both amazing and confounding. It's wonderful and offensive. And how do we know that David's Lord is fully divine? Because he's been... Uh, given, if you will, the right hand of God. Who dares to sit at the right hand of God? Can any creature, can any angel, can you or me dare to sit at the right hand of God with all the authority of God? No. It's a clear affirmation of Christ's divinity. And that's why Jesus brought it up. Yahweh says to David's Lord, sit at my right hand. And how long is he to sit at God's right hand? Until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. God's favorite Bible verse. I want you to memorize this today. Seriously, it is God's favorite Bible verse. It's a very intense idiom there in the verse. He doesn't just say, sit at my right hand and make your enemies a footstool although some of the verses will say that, but it literally says, I'm going to make your enemies a footstool for your feet. you got to understand Middle Eastern culture. If you even show somebody the bottom of your feet in in, uh, Middle Eastern culture, it's an insult. If you really want to insult somebody, what do you do? You take off your shoe from your feet and you throw it at them, right? That's, That's the height of an insult. So when... God says to his son, I'm going to make your enemies your footstool for your feet. He's talking about the absolute, complete subjugation and, if you will, humiliation of all those who oppose him. That is the reign and the rule of our Christ. And God wants you to know with absolute authority the dominion of his son. And the church said, you say, well, that sounds good. Kind of harsh, pastor. Well, it is exactly what was preached in the very first Christian sermon ever preached. On the day of Pentecost, remember the story, the rushing mighty wind comes into Jerusalem, tongues of fire fall. They're speaking the praises of God in languages they'd never heard. The the city demands an explanation, right? What's going on? So the apostle Peter stands up, and preaches the first Christian sermon ever preached, and then he kind of goes through the history of redemption and how the Jews have always blown it and always made mistakes, and now, but God is now fulfilling His, His, His promise to uh, pour out His Spirit upon all people, and then this is the conclusion of the first Christian sermon ever preached. So you want to hear the punchline? Let's read it. Verse 31 of Acts 2. So Peter refers to David. David, therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. Remember, that's the promise. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that which you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Who ascended into heaven? Everybody got that? Jesus, right? Until when? Until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all of the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. We confess then with the apostle Peter that Christ is the ascended Lord of heaven, sitting at God's right hand. And when did Jesus start to reign? 40 days after the resurrection, right, we read of the ascension. So where is Jesus now? The right hand of the Father. What is he doing there now? He's reigning. He's ruling. We're not waiting for some future cataclysmic event in order to let Jesus rule. Jesus is ruling and reigning in the earth with all power and authority. Wasn't that what the Father promised him? All authority, all power, where? In heaven and in the future? No. In heaven and on earth has been given to me. Given. This is exactly what the apostle uh, Paul preached about our great faith. Look in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 22. Again, an appeal to the scripture. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive but each in his own order Christ the first fruits then at his coming those who belong to Christ then comes the end okay everybody got your chart so some things have to happen then comes the end and when and what happens when he delivers the kingdom of god the father what after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. Why? For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. It's a very simple chart. Jesus ruling and reigning, subduing and conquering all his enemies, and until he has done that, then the end comes. It's Very simple. Some You'd be surprised how complicated many people try to make this. So when Jesus comes, we have his second advent. And history is concluded and consummated. And all of this is guaranteed. It's guaranteed on the ground of Christ's perfect obedience, even to his death on the cross. It is proven by the resurrection of Christ, whereby he was declared to be the son of God with power. And it is guaranteed by God's sure promise to his son. How many of you believe God the Father will keep His promise to God the Son. Then why in Psalm 2 does He say to the Son, ask of me and I will give you the nations as my inheritance? Is God the Father an Indian giver? He's going to take it back? Absolutely not. Jesus has secured for Himself the name above all names and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We even see a glimpse of this in Hebrews 10. When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies shall be made a footstool for his feet. Can we go a little further? Okay. So, preacher... So what? That's all great. That's wonderful. What does that mean for me sitting right here today in my circumstances? Well, I I hope that this would lift any discouragement that might be on your life. The world is not out of control. And the good news is Jesus is king. He's still king. And he has not abdicated his throne. Amen? Who's going to take the throne away from Jesus? Good luck with that. He has won. He is winning. And he will rule, the Scripture says, until all creation is subject to him. You say, well, it doesn't feel like that. I understand. Sometimes in our circumstances, we're going through ups and downs. And it does. If Jesus is in control, everything feels out of control. Jesus, take the will, right? We even sing about it. Let me uh, remind you The Lord is the Lord of the whole earth. (laughs) Do you know when the early church began, the number of Christians was only one Christian per every hundred non Christian in the world? And it was pretty scary times for the church. But over time, as the gospel has gone forth, as God's people have been faithful, even to the point of laying down their life as martyrs for the sake of the kingdom of God, what has happened? More and more and more people, the percentage has come down. So it was 1 to 100 in the first century. According to the U.S. Center for World Missions, very conservatively, it's now just 1 out of every 10 people in the world are followers of Jesus. Actually, they say even less, but I'm just going to be very conservative. 1 in 10. Wait a minute, preacher. I thought everything's supposed to get worse so that Jesus can come back. Can I just say... You guys may want to rethink that because the gospel works. The kingdom grows. Jesus said the kingdom of God is like a little seed, like a little mustard seed, right? You plant it in the garden. Even though it's the smallest seed, what happens? It grows up into a large bush, and all the birds of the air come and find their rest in it. The gospel works. Daniel had a vision. Remember the vision of the image? Uh, The golden head, silver body, the iron legs, the clay feet. And at the end of the vision, what happens? A stone comes out of a mountain. What happens? The stone hits the feet of the image. Most people uh, assume that that's the Roman Empire. And then what happens to that stone? It grows and it grows and it grows. And it fills the whole earth. Hmm. Is that what's going on in history? Now, that doesn't mean in our little circle or in our culture or even in our nation that the kingdom of God is enjoying great success, but the nations are like a a drop in the bucket to God. God is the God of the whole earth. Do you know right now in China there are more Christians than there are members of the Communist Party? And it scares them to death. In Africa, God is on the move. In Latin America, God is on the move. God's kingdom is growing and growing and growing, and His kingdom is just fine. Jesus is doing exactly what He said He would do. For by Him are all things. All things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and what? For Him. The gospel works. And the gospel comes to you, and then Jesus in his generosity gives you his spiritual uh, armor and says, now you go forth in my name. And we've been given spiritual weapons, mighty weapons, not carnal weapons. And what are they? Prayer, proclamation. Isn't that interesting? Just one little childlike prayer of faith, Jesus said, can take a whole mountain and throw it in the sea all it takes. And if we go forth and we proclaim the name, the the word of God, what does God say? The word of God is powerful. It's two-edged and it cuts both ways. And what does it do? It brings salvation to the elect and it brings perdition and confirmation of their perdition to the lost. And then in the midst of all of that, Jesus says, if you'll just go forth, if you'll just do that, if you'll just pray, and if you'll just proclaim, I'll go with you. He promises His presence. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, right? And what's the end of it? And I will be with you always. So we get prayer. We have proclamation. We have Christ's presence. And by these foolish means, Christ has been subduing His enemies and advancing His kingdom. Uh, We just went through the 400th anniversary of the Canons of Dort. We went to a little seminar on the Canons of Dort, uh, which was in 1619, where they tried to affirm some of the cardinal doctrines that were being threatened. I encourage you to read the history. But they put together something called the Canons of Dort, which is basically some theological ideas that they believe articulate the biblical message. And here, Article 9. This plan that we've been talking about, the plan of redemption, arising out of God's eternal love for the elect from the beginning of the world to the present time has been powerfully carried out and will also be carried out into the future, the gates of hell seeking vainly to prevail against it. As a result... The elect are gathered into one, all in their own time. And there is always a church of believers founded upon Christ's blood, a church which steadfastly loves, persistently worships, and here and in all eternity praises Him as her Savior who laid down His life for her on the cross as a bridegroom for His bride. That's what we confess. So let me conclude. You say, well, boy, all this conquering of enemies, that sounds kind of scary, preacher. Well, you may have forgot something. You used to be his enemy. I used to be his enemy. By nature, we're born in enmity, the Bible says, with God. And yet God in his great grace has come to you. He has subdued you with his love. And by the irresistible power of his word and spirit, that natural enmity against Christ has been crushed by the grace of God. And that's good news because if he can save people like me, people like you, he can save your children. He can save that backslidden person that you love so much. He can reach that guy at work or that gal at work that's frustrating you and you just got to (laughs) remember except for the grace of God that would be you but God by his great grace subdued you so what does that mean we need to pray and to preach with confidence knowing that God uses imperfect people even David's and Solomon's and you and me to advance his dominion and his fame we cannot abandon the theater of spiritual warfare and drink from the brooks of spiritual compromise. We must not surrender our soul, our family, our church, our culture by imbibing in the poisonous streams of defeatism as if Jesus is no longer King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We need to follow the Lord of our salvation, the captain of our salvation in his wholehearted zeal to the glory of God's glorious cause. There is no king but King Jesus, and no one can frustrate his inevitable victory. So go in his name. Declare his free grace. Seek his kingdom and his righteousness, and know that the victory is won in him. Let us pray.